Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. We are back after the Christmas break. Fashionably late, some might say. But in my defence, I've done three of these this week. Michael, you've done none. You've been slacking. Gary, that I'm slacking, it may be that I don't have that imperial colonial urge that you seem to have to take over every podcast or radio thing that you can see within grasping distance. Poor John McGurk gets a bit of a cold and there, bang, you're in there. In my defence, he didn't have a flag. He didn't have a <laughs> Wasn't a nation at all until I got there. On good news, Michael, to come back to, a uh, great news, in fact, the topic or the range of available topics to us has expanded, Michael. We've been authorised to talk about new, uncomfortable topics. Mac, Mac Cooper is in the Business Post saying that we need to have a conversation about immigration. And now, of course, that the right sort of person has said all of the things that the wrong sort of people have been saying for a while, we can now have that much-needed national conversation. Oh, that's, that is so, that is really good to hear. And I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to Matt Cooper for saying that we can do that, because I think a lot of us have been waiting for Matt to come out on this and to give us some kind of clear direction. But we have it now, and that's, oh, that is so good to hear. So, uh, by the way, just for clarity, Matt, um, Matt is obviously a good person, and he's talking about this. This is in the interests of the nation. Now, is it, that doesn't mean, like, say, if people from Drimna or Hob or Akram talk about it, that doesn't mean that they're not racist anymore, does it? They probably still are racist. I believe the, the exact test is if you look like the sort of person who may have once put a brick on top of another brick, you're probably still a racist. Okay, okay, right. Or somebody who may be in possession of a power drill or, or a pair of sneakers. Actually, when Matt Cooper speaks, Michael, there's a sketch on Brass Eye. And every time I hear Matt Cooper do that whole sort of, you know, we've got to talk about something important now. All I can think about is that sketch, but if someone unironically believed it. And it's the sketch where they're talking about heroin. And the presenter, they're injecting into his arm and says, but the amount of heroin I do is is absolutely harmless. I do it on a weekly basis, purely recreationally. But what about those who are less able to handle their heroin and make fall into criminality. Builders and blacks. <laughs> People who are not middle class. I think isn't there a class reference in there somewhere as well? Yeah, that's right. I just, I kind of feel like that is Matt Cooper, but not as a joke. I, I, I have to say, I have a punch off for people who want, who start sentence with, we need to have a conversation about in the tone that they are saying this for the first time, that nobody else has ever thought about talking about this. And by the very act of them saying this, this will now begin a debate and a dialectic, which will lead ultimately ultimately to a solution and everybody would be better. How many times in your life, and I have been a longer alive than you, so I presumably will win this, have you heard in the context of American politics, we need to have a conversation about race. Why there are times you feel like the only thing that American politics has been talking about for the last 30 years has been race. I mean, going back to Jeepers, 50 years ago when Nixon was uh, in his second term, I think, and he was being advised by Democratic Senator Moynihan, who said to him, uh, his advice to Nixon was I think and that we need a period of benign neglect when it comes to the race issue and Nixon completely ignored that and ploughed ahead with all sorts of uh, other policies but this notion we need to have a conversation it kind of begs the question what what, what is all of the stuff that other people have been doing up to now what what was that Gary that obviously wasn't a conversation or is Matt simply just unaware that other people have been talking about this for one two or X number of years Michael I'm going to give you the opening paragraph of this article and I'll put a link for those uh, for listeners below. Now, this 
business is paywalled, so unless you have a subscription to the Business Post or known one of the many, many ways to get around paywalls, uh, you won't be able to read it. It can be very difficult to have serious discussions about putting limits on immigration and refugees without saying things that may give succor to the small number of racists and xenophobes who live amongst us. But there has to be a serious discussion about the current crisis. And he, Michael, he very charitably says, there are also Irish people who have cause for legitimate concern. I love the positioning of the far right in Irish media and political dialogues, because there are no far right elected politicians. The political parties, to the extent they exist, have gotten absolutely nowhere. There are no far right media sources, but there are multiple far left elected politicians. There are multiple reporters who take that position, either openly or have it privately, and it biases their work, but they never come in. But the far right, Michael, in Ireland is simultaneously absolutely ineffective and inconsequential, in, inconsequential, but also something where we have to filter all of our discussions through the prism of, will this give sucker to the far right? Almost like, Michael, this is in many cases not a legitimate concern, or not, if it is a concern, one that can be backed by any sort of real-world data, but something which is useful to people. It is useful to politicians to be able to suggest criticism of their policies will give sucker to you know, groups that cannot be accepted and will give rise to terrible consequences because that might put people off criticising their policies. And it's useful for academics and media types to do it because it both helps their causes and gives them something to write about that they know people will read, or at least the right sort of people will read. Looking at their finances, it's unclear if people in general read them. Well, the first thing I, I would say is kudos, almost unironic kudos to Matt for saying small number. He did at least say small number. Now, I, I think that if you're talking about the Irish right, now, and I say right anywhere, I mean from the, the proper centre right all the way through the right to the hard right to the far right, you could probably fit them into the back of Foley's. Uh, I, you and I, uh, Gary, have been at events over the years where I have looked around and thought to myself, you know what? A small incendiary device and you could get rid of pretty well most of the Irish right in one go. Well, what precisely is considered to be far? I'm sure I've seen Gript described as far right. In fact, I'm pretty certain I have. And by not people who are complete nutters, because I mean, they're I've seen people describe them as far as people who are have been in receipt of salaries or grants from the state to do the kinds of things that they were willing to they were they were involved in doing in NGOs or nonprofits and that kind of thing. So yes, yes. You, you see, the problem there is if you read, I think John McGurk's Wikipedia page, you'll see Grip described as I believe the the exact phrasing now was uh, some have described as you know right wing, centre right, or far right, uh, but. Yes, that, that does come up. And academics, particularly on the left, have been fond of saying it. And generally, they're not worth chasing up. But occasionally, they'll put it in writing somewhere. And then you end up with, let's say, Michael, the Defence Forces having to pulp tens of thousands of books. Tell me, I mean, genuine question here. Have you ever heard an Irish politician described as far left? I mean, occasionally, I listen to what I'm saying. So, yes. Okay, shall we say people outside of the hard right media bubble that is either gripped or the the odd experiences of the Edmund Burke Institute. I mean, it's genuine. I remember, I, I think we talked about it at the time, there was, do you remember there was, there was a Brazilian election? I can't remember. I remember the vice president was a member of the Brazilian Communist Party brackets 
Marxist-Leninist. And I do remember thinking at the time, and we talked about, if that's not far left, I mean, are we talking about syndical, I don't know, syndicalist anarchists, you know, the kind of people that the communists killed in 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 Catalonia in the in the Spanish Civil War is how far left do you have to go? where does it where does it become the far left or the hard left I am I would really like somebody in good faith I would ask that question in good faith and expect and somebody in the Irish world of the say the RT news newsrooms or some or the 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 Irish Times or somewhere like that to actually tell me what would constitute a politician who, that they would describe as far left in the Irish context. Like Paul Murphy. I don't think I've ever heard Paul Murphy described as far left. Like in, shall we say, standard media discourse. Left wing, yes, certainly. But I mean, Brendan Howland was described as on the left. And I said there was a fair degree of, shall we say, open blue water between Brendan Howland and, uh, and Paul Murphy. Uh, I, I, would, I would actually... I would like to know. I would really like to know what, what it is and what, what also the, what the subtleties between being what is it to be right wing, hard right, far right. I think there's an element of what's called a Martin Bailey. It's a type of uh, debate tactic. Martin Bailey is a, is a style of defensive fortification, which has an outer wall and an inner wall, effectively. Towlin Castle is a, another way of talking about it. So Matt Cooper's article starts Michael talking about the far right. Then it talks about the xenophobic. Then we go to the last paragraph of it. We do not need a nasty right wing element emerging in this country to disrupt and divide everyone else. I would put that as an example of a Martin Bailey, because if you challenge Matt Cooper on it to say, well, you've gone from far right to right wing and those are not the same, he would fall back and say, well, obviously they're not the same. But the end result of this tactic is you can conflate two things together because you can repeatedly say it and no one is going to go against it every time. And over time, you end up basically tying them together, either deliberately or just because personally you don't think they're that different. Actually, there is one thing he says, and it's, it's just an interesting line. And he's talking about the negative things that people are bringing up about immigration. And he says, particularly obnoxious are the efforts to spread stories of men in gangs, scaring women, and of serious crime being carried out by these people. But the, here's the next line. Now, it is true that charges have been brought against some of those who have arrived in the last year, and the courts will make their decisions on these charges after the exercise of due process, which is just a... It's just a weird thing. Debate-wise, it's an odd way to do it. To go, well, these people are absolutely wrong. Now, yes, this did happen, but that's unrelated. Usually, if someone is trying to convince you they're right when about these sort of things, they just wouldn't mention the second bear. I don't rightfully know what Matt did. Maybe, Michael, because as we said, he's just that fair a person. Do you think that part of the problem here is that the bien pensant of not just Irish society, but people in the West generally, have a genuine fear that the great unwashed are just so unsophisticated and with a basic tendency to irrational violence that the reaction to every single incident that could potentially see one religious or ethnic or cultural group painted badly is to jump out and to start the, uh, the usual, oh, you can't make claims about this so you can't talk about this you have to be careful because they they really do think that the people on on the loose or the back of the 17 bus or whatever are actually are constantly teetering on the point 
of getting the fire brands out and rushing up and starting the starting a pogrom. That they actually this is a real fear they have. It's incapable of distinguishing an individual committing an act and a, and therefore and and then jumping from that individual's particular background to making the assumption that all of those people that share some of those cultural or historical or ethnic or religious characteristics are going to be the same and therefore have to be respect, held responsible. I, the first reaction say, after 9-11 from a lot of people was to immediately, and I could understand it in a sense, I mean, to go down to a local mosque and show solidarity with their local Muslim community in the United States because they, they were terrified that there were going to be horrible attacks all over the place in the United States on people who were Muslim. Now, the fact was that it didn't eventuate. And to my knowledge, I mean, there have been some studies done on this kind of thing in the wake of uh, terrorist attacks associated one with one group or another to see if there had been uh, consequences for the wider community. And my memory is that this simply doesn't happen, that it turns out that people in Western democracies tend to be actually fairly capable of working out that, yeah, that was uh, him, but he doesn't actually represent them. Now, if you talk to people like of the generation, say, of my, or my, my, my aunts and uncles that were alive and working in the United Kingdom in England in the 1970s and 1980s during the IRA campaigns, particularly when there were attacks on, tar- on, on civilians or not just civilians, but murderous targets, murderous attacks that took place on, on the mainland. I think it, they would all say it made them feel terribly uncomfortable and worried and anxious. But that the vast majority of the case, and that was 40 years ago, far more unsophisticated people than we are today, they would say that the people's reaction was, well, we know you, you're an individual. We don't judge you on the basis of what somebody else who happened to be from the same island did in Birmingham or in London. But I think that they do have this, It's they feel like a real concern. Um, but am I wrong? I mean, have we seen in the last 40 years ex- large egregious examples of where people have reacted badly on, towards a group of people because of the acts of other groups? I, I'm just curious of where, where this, this concern, this terrible concern comes from. I mean, it's been a while since the last pogrom in Western Europe. Yeah, the Limerick pogrom was, I think, 1907. And as pogroms go... I I they kind of fell out of fashion, I think. Yeah, the 20th century was kind of a a salutary uh, warning in a certain kind of blood libel theory of ascribing moral capability. It's one of the weird things, isn't it, Gary? That we live in a world where increasingly, with, say, things like critical race theory and certain forms of theories about gender... uh, uh, sex difference that we are increasingly told by people in academia and the upper ends of it, that we actually should hold certain groups in a sense responsible and we should ascribe to them some kind of historical culpability to the actions of their great 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 grandparents and that we should in some sense disadvantage them or advantage others because of the advantage that has accrued to them because of the actions historically of these people. And yet, surely the experience of the 20th century was that's not a good idea to ascribe guilt to any group. One of the interesting things I think about the 20th century and uh, the aftermath of World War II, people don't like to talk about the amount of things the Nazis did. Slow now, slowly, Gary, slowly. No, this this isn't a Kanye West-style thing, Michael. Okay. The Nazis did a lot of things that were broadly accepted by other people at the time, like the Nazis' support for eugenics. A lot of the pre- presentation of that is as if, as if it was a Nazi thing and the Nazis ran with it. But that wasn't the case. Eugenics was widely accepted at the time and if I mean if you look at uh, the Canadian experience of eugenics or the American experience of eugenics and and, um, and a couple of European cases as well but after World War II 
there was a sort of feeling that certain things that the Nazis had done, because the Nazis had done them, now had to be stopped. And so you saw a movement against you know, eugenics, you saw a movement against like anti-Semitism. If you read any of the texts on this, or just the experience of Jewish people in like, 1920 Europe or America, they weren't having a great time of it. Like, it wasn't that the Nazis rose from nowhere just without any input from anyone else, developed all these awful things, and then afterwards we continued never doing them. Many of them were commonly done, but the experience of the Nazis and the Holocaust led to them being stopped. And the reason I bring this up in this context, Michael, is yes, historically what people are doing now has not worked out well, but we're moving away from the experience that stopped a lot of those things. I would say, uh, it's funny you mentioned that particular one because I was talking to a historian recently who said that he'd been thinking about this a lot in one way. He's he, he more and more coming to the opinion. Uh, the opinion. I don't think it's an, a unique one. That, uh, there has been a way of thinking that the Nazis made eugenics possible or eugenicism possible. And he said that he's more of the opinion that in fact eugenics made the Nazis possible in some, at least in some, to some degree and gave respectability to a certain kind of uh, a worldview that the Nazis an ethno-nationalist view but that that was not a, a, an idea which was originating originated with the Nazis the National Socialists but rather was well established. There's a book out there Gary if I don't if you, if you, if you come across it and I would say to the reader I would highly recommend if you can get hold of it. It's written, written by English historian Michael Burley, who became probably famous for his single volume history of the Third Reich, was a new history of the Third Reich, which is brilliant. It won the Samuel Johnson Prize. It's an absolutely stunning piece of work. It's a, he writes like a novelist with strong narrative, but he, it's a wonderful piece of work. But he wrote a book before that called Death and Deliverance, I think, uh, History of Euthanasia in Germany and certainly it deals with what I think of being the first Holocaust in Nazi Germany which was the Holocaust against uh, people with disability uh, people with mental illness that took place before the before the war broke out at all and it's a heartbreaking book it's beautifully written wonderfully researched but really really hard work I mean I've read if you read history you you, you, you tend to be reading a lot of the time about tragedy and, and horror but that was a book that I genuinely would I would read a chapter and I would put it down and go away for a little while before I could come back to it at times. Some of the letters, some of the, the documents uh, that were contem from contemporary sources were really, really heartbreaking stuff. But it, he made it's clear that this is not something which is coming out of the ether. This is not something which they're generating. This is something which is well-established. People, the Fabians, George Bernard Shaw and the likes, they were perfectly comfortable I mean, isn't that isn't there a famous case from that great jurist? He's a great hero of, of American jurisprudence. Is it well? Is it Wendell Wilkie? I mean, no, Oliver Wendell Holmes, I think actually. There was a famous case in the United States, which is often quoted, and, and people say I'm misquoting, you know, where there's a family, and it's about sterilization, and it's the line: three generations of of, of cretins is enough. Three generations of imbeciles is enough. Yeah, that one. Yeah, three um, three generations of imbeciles is enough, and people felt perfectly comfortable talking about it and they talked about it very much in that the language of animal husbandry but also in the language of economics and one, that's one of the things the nazis were very good at was setting up both the sentimental argument but also the economic argument i mean when you go and look into it and go to the late 19th century and to america you start seeing things like requirements to undertake medical exams before you could be given a marriage license because well michael 
the unfit should not reproduce. Uh, you see compulsory sterilization laws coming in in the early 20th century. You see quite prominent uh, progressive politicians coming behind them, most famously, uh, most famously Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who had a great problem expanding the organization into black neighborhoods, considering it sounded, based on her statements, like she just didn't want there to be black neighborhoods. And it's actually, it's it's quite interesting when you look at some of the documentation from the time, because there's been an attempt to put the eugenics movement as a conservative uh, atrocity. But when you actually look and go back at it, some of the primary opponents of eugenics, at least in America, were religious conservatives, because they thought it was playing God. I th- it's kind of predictable. I mean, that in that, that line is that there's always been that. First start, conservatives have are very suspicious of any area, any time when the state starts to reach its hand into 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 the fa- that deep into the family and into say things like the right of to form a family, the right to have children, the right to limit the number of children, and these were all subjects that became an issue. Remember, the nineteenth century, and not we we live with it to this day, is that is formed by that Malthusian you know image. That sense that population increases, what is it? Geometrically and food production increases arithmetically, therefore inevitably you reach upon a time when there will be more mouths and there will be, there will be food and it, you, so we need to control population. Darwinism was, was seen to be given a kind of a, a scientific basis to this, you know, the, the, the notion, which was very shocking to Victorians that nature is red in tooth and claw and everything is done on the basis of, you know, competition and violence, but that this, ultimately the, this, this, the, the survival of the fittest, which I don't think is a phrase that Darwin ever actually used. One of the curious little things about the, the conflict with religion is in the, the early 20th century, there was a, a statement, I think, from the, uh, I think it was anyway, that period, from the Vatican about Darwinism. They said they didn't have a problem with the theory of evolution as long as it was based on the theory of monogenesis. Because it was very popular, and this this continued through the twenties and thirties that that uh, you had monogenesis and polygenesis. The idea with monogenesis was that all human beings came from one from one source, if you like, one Adam, one Eve, and therefore all, that the human, the Homo sapiens sapiens, it was one species. It, we were all in it together. There were others, however, who who were far more and polygenesis. I think was popular with some was more popular in some areas at times which was that in fact we had evolved separately and of course this allowed to give some kind of a scientific basis to the notion that some races because we had separate evolution or separate separate origins and then separate evolutions perhaps were better than others they were more advanced than others had higher adaptive capacities than other higher iqs and so like, am i wrong but it's Remember, it was the 1920s was really the end point of the open immigration into the United States. That's when you had from the the Irish had been going over since since the famine, and the Germans had been coming over since the 1850s. But then from 1890 onwards, you had a large migration from the Mediterranean, particularly Italy. And this started to be seen as being a big problem because that nativist element of the United States had always been suspicious of large numbers of Catholics coming in. And they started to close down and become more rigorous on their appli- on who could come into the country or not. And one of the things that certainly was proposed, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to get it wrong, it may not have been brought in, but I think it was that there were IQ tests were applicable, as crude tests, which were 
for evaluation of, of IQs for who could come in through Ellis Island or not. Not just the usual things like whether you're dipty or you had scarlet fever. There were health tests, but also IQ tests because, again, they didn't want, they were worried that this lower quality human stock could bring down the the quality of the human capital that was in the United States already. One of the curious things that, sorry, just before I finish, a funny thing, the two, there were two big things that were cultural things between progressives and, and, and conservatives. One, uh, the religious, and that the Catholic Church certainly would have been on that, on the side there about uh, stopping people breeding. That was a bad, that was an unnecessary and unallowable extension of the state's power, but also prohibition. Curiously, um, uh, that was the thing. Catholics tended to be opposed to prohibition. And that may have been because the largest single groups of Catholics coming in the second half of the 19th century into Germany, in the United States were Germans and Irish. But there would have been a strong, as historically, while there was a strong temperance movement, the idea of prohibition was regarded with deep suspicion by the Catholic Church in the United States. And, of course, on the other hand, the natives sort of these drunken, violent Irish types coming in. And then again, if you look at the murder rates and the crime rates on the eastern coast of the United States in that period, it's kind of understandable as well. The case you were talking about there, the, the three generations of imbeciles is enough. That's actually an interesting case if listeners uh, want to read up on this. It was the Book v. Bell case, and it involved uh, a woman with the second name uh, Buck, Carrie Buck, I believe. And she was 18 years old and she was in a mental institute. And Virginia passed a law saying that they could sterilize anyone who was in an institution uh, supported by the state who was considered to be, uh, I think, feeble-minded, epileptic, or in some way, as they would say, genetically defective. And it was Buck v. Bell, which which was a, that was a, a Supreme Court decision. Uh, by Wendell, uh, well, it was written by Wendell Holmes. And that basically, there had been sterilization bills before that. Uh, this case, I think, was 1927. But when that came true, that was the federal courts basically saying, yes, you can do this and it does not breach the Constitution. And it's worth reading some of the arguments that were put forward as to why the state should be allowed to sterilize Kerry Book, because they are explicitly utilitarian, uh, which is one of the reasons why utilitarian, one of the big dangers with utilitarianism is that you can justify horrible, horrible things because you can say in the long term they're going to lead to an increase in happiness or pleasure or depending on the type of utilitarian you have, you know, human flourishing. That, I think, was a lot of why the conservatives didn't like it because historically conservatives have not liked utilitarianism and have tend to warn, Michael, that things like this are going to happen. But it's a, it's a Fascinating case. You were remembering as well, when that was happening in the United States, uh, other fine examples, I mean, I, I, this is a stone which is often thrown, but still will throw it anyway. Uh, Sweden carried out uh, forced sterilization until 1975. Well, the Americans kept kept on doing sterilizations until the 70s as well. There was a, just the title, I think, is fantastic. In Sweden, I think it was night, early 20, early, the early 20s anyway, they set up the State Institute of Racial Biology. And that just by itself, I mean, that's 1922, Gary. Has Mussolini even come to power yet? This is this is years before Hitler uh, gets into Germany. This is in Sweden, the wonderful uh, democratic, and it is indeed a wonderful democratic country. I don't, but it's 1920. The State Institute of Racial Biology, and you could be sterilized for all sorts of things. For example, feeble-mindedness. 
or having an antisocial lifestyle. Uh, I think it would have been used, for example, women who had I think, more than one pregnancy outside of marriage. I think that was considered to be an example of an antisocial lifestyle that could lead to force. And we're not talking, I mean, there would have been some voluntary sterilization, but there would have been, the most, largely we're talking about forced sterilization. Uh, people with severe illnesses, physical disabilities, uh, anything diseases which were perceived to be have a, a genetic component to ensure that they wouldn't be carried on to the next generation that kind of thing so that was no i i i think this it probably peaked in the 30s and 40s and after after the second world war these things tended to become less popular and it really had had petered away but it it was it was still in theory and practice until 1975 so it was it, it it was not a it was not just it wasn't just in germany it wasn't certainly just in the united states these things were not here's a fun little question for you michael do you know what carrie book did to end up in a virginian health institution and some under the eye of the the baleful eye of the state no i i i I don't know. What had she done? She was raped. She was raped and she had a child out of wedlock. So to the institution with her and then in the institution, she apparently did not like being in the institution, uh, was untidy, unmannered. Uh, there's some claims she engaged in prostitution when she was working there or when she was there to make money. And from that, they judged her to be a congenital idiot and therefore someone compulsory who should be uh, sterilized. There is an open debate as to whether or not there was anything actually wrong with the girl. Not that that changes the morality of the situation, but the general consensus seems to be that she was not mentally disabled. Maybe not terribly smart, but not disabled. Do you want a second uh, kind of weird table quiz point on this thing? Okay, go on. Okay. This was just before um, the the Scopes monkey trial. I, at most, it was a year before it. Now, so that was when John Scopes gets in trouble for teaching evolution. The book he was using to teach evolution was called A Civic Biology. Now, I will give you a quote <clears throat> from A Civic Biology, Michael. Yes. If such people were lower animals, we would probably kill them off to prevent them from spreading. Humanity will not allow this, but we do have the remedy of separating the sexes in asylums or other places and in various ways of preventing intermarriage and the possibilities of perpetuating such a low and degenerate race. The the popular conception of the Scopes Monkey Trial was, Michael, should we say, somewhat incomplete. <laughs> because, yes, it was about evolution, but it was also about, you know, some other things that Scopes was teaching the children. <laughs> there was some other stuff going on there. That's a great movie, by the way, anybody said, Inherit the Wind. Am I right? Inherit the Wind. Spencer Inherit the Tracy. Wind, yeah. I was played before it was a movie, I believe. I believe so. Um, Got slightly sidetracked there. Slightly sidetracked. Just before we finish up, because it's the new year, we don't. But to, one of the things we had considered briefly doing, but we completely on off script here. I don't know how that quite happened because yeah. it never happens, does it, Gary? We never go off script. Tight like a yeah, razor. Absolutely. Uh, before we go, I just wanted to mention two things because uh, we may actually talk about the other stuff, rather more serious stuff, like COVID hitting four million infections a day in China and stuff like that. Only killed 22 people, according to the Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Gary, if I give you, I, I put some money in a pot and you put some money in a pot and I bet that the Chinese are lying, you bet the Chinese are telling the truth. Who do you think is going to get the money in the pot? I think we can trust the Chinese, Michael. You know, if you can't trust the Chinese, Gary, who can you trust? I think actually, and legitimately, you can trust the Chinese. They act in an incredibly consistent fashion. Absolutely do. 
And it, somebody, again, historian, same historian talking to me, he said, who actually has a fair bit of Chinese knowledge about the Chinese, he said that the thing that you have to remember with the Chinese always and everywhere is in much the same way as you can argue that Putin is simply, developed, simply behaving the same way as everybody in Russia has behaved since Peter or Catherine. He said the Chinese are maybe communists, but it's the Chinese aim for one thing, stability and peace, stability and peace, because the great enemy is famine, because famine is when the when the, the, the people come and cut your head off, you lose the mandate for heaven. So no matter what, if they think the Russians are going to be uh, an impediment towards stability and peace, then the Russians can go whistle. Anyway, I wanted to mention two movies, Gary. One, because I liked it. One, because I was amazed by it. Um, just to, for the, the listener out there, I, uh, Banshees of Inishirin, um is being talked a, a lot about for Oscars and things. I saw it. I thought it was tremendously good fun. I was very conscious, Gary, that there were times I was the only person in the cinema who was laughing. I don't know. And it, it, it does seem to be very much a Marmite kind of a film. But the other one, I don't know. Have you seen Avatar yet? Uh, no, I haven't seen the first Avatar yet. So... I'm going to get to it in time. I, 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 I basically had to get out of the house. For, so I thought, well, to hell with it. I'll go and endure it. And I, I had expected to endure it. And I, I can't say it isn't anything except what... You know, at the end of the day, it's a mixture of... It's a cowboy. It's a 1960s, 1970s cowboy and Indian story where, you know, you like the Indians and the cowboys and the bad guys and the Indians and the good guys. You throw in a little bit of Secret Seven and a little bit of James Bond into it and so on. But I don't know if this was the takeaway. And I'll be very curious. And the reason I mentioned it, because for once, they are genuinely asking, if any of the listeners out there have actually seen it, I don't think that this was the point of the movie, but it left me with three, it seemed to be, central messages. One, the importance of religion. Two, the importance of the nuclear the nuclear family and the importance within the nuclear family of a, of a, a boy having a father. And thirdly, that sometimes violence is necessary because pacifism will only get you so far. Now, Gary, it is my suspicion that, that was not in, they were not intended to be the core messages of this this piece of uh, cinema. But it seemed to me that that was a, it, you know, that, I don't know if you've seen that the episode and it may, it may be a common meme outside, but I'm only aware of it through an episode in The Big Bang Theory where um, one of the characters makes the point, having never seen any of the Indiana Jones movies, when she sees Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, she makes the point that actually one of the plot holes in it is that if Indiana Jones had never been born, it, the story would have ended up in exactly the same way. And it drives them all wrong because they're desperately trying to show, no, no, Indy was absolutely central to the whole process. And they just, and at the end, they have to give in and say, oh, God, that's absolutely right. I don't think that this was the point of this movie. I don't think this was it. But it seemed that was the, the message I was left with. Religion, nuclear family, and sometimes you just have to kill people. And I'd be just curious, if anybody's out there and wants to bother leaving him a comment, did, did, they, did they think, did they come away with the same impression as me? Or maybe just wildly over-reading it. Uh, it's an interesting piece of, cinema because it's 3d and it all looks very pretty and it's a bit weird but also you remember you mentioned before we were talking in the first uh they talked about unobtainium which i thought was the single best thing in cinema for years the fact that they <laughs> best name they could come up for the thing that was driving the terrible exploitative rape of this planet by the sky people which is us is something unobtainium fantastic 
in this one, it's not on opt on Optanium. It's it's whale brain juice, which I just thought was. Bad. I wanted to be at the writers' meeting where they've been told, "Listen, we we need something. We have to have something that is why they're there, and it can't be the unobtainium because I think there's a plot problem with that, and we we can't do that again." And eventually, somebody came up with whale brain juice. And this might be because I believe this movie has been in production for like two decades at this point. Um, I think we all agreed that hunting whales was bad. So I, I'm, I'm not sure how timely a message that is. <laughs> to, to, to move from movies back to news for a second, Michael, and just to, to close up on this. I have Something has happened and I think we should be putting a more, pop, or a more positive spin on it, Michael. There's been a significant hike in the level of violent crime, including murder, uh, apparently particularly for women. Now, this, Michael, is being presented as a, a terrible thing, uh, you know, an abomination. But, Michael, I've got to look back to my own work where, you know, I reported that uh, the level of reported sexual crime since Fine Gael took power in 2011 has gone up by rather a considerable amount. And I was told by everyone involved that that wasn't real, but rather just an improvement in uh, the rates of people being willing to report it to police. And I've got to ask, have we... Have we yeah, have we questioned if that's happening in this case? I, I see your point, Gary. Um, I, I, I just, I'm just wondering how reporting and murder is going to quite work. Are we saying that in the past there were bodies that were being presented for consideration by the coroner and they were passing? No, well, we're, we feel that the three gunshots in the back of the head probably indicate suicide. Well, maybe more people are just coming forward and admitting to murder. Or just admitting to murder. Yeah, I mean, maybe before, you know, it's the same amount of murders. There were and people who were missing people are now just murder victims. In the same way, Michael, when I, I went to the, you know, the guards and said, yeah, uh, rapes have doubled since 2011. And they said, well, you know, it might look that way, but um, it's actually just a magic trick. And then when I asked them to comment on how they knew that and how the uh, police uh, director uh, knew that because he had commented that that was what was happening, they refused to comment on the statements made by yeah, the head yeah, of their yeah. own organization. Um, so, you know, I've, I think at this point we can't assume anything about Irish uh, crime statistics. It could be, and it could be explained by this, Gary, that we had a conversation about how it was bad for people to murder people, right? So people then for came forward and said, oh, by the way, I murdered someone. Because do you remember in the uh, the terrible, all those terrible cases of people being injected with syringes? The thing I said didn't happen. And then I had Regina Doherty tell me that the difference between me and her was that she believed victims and I didn't. That, that thing, that thing that never seemed to pan out and where the guards never found a single instance of it that actually stood up. And now in Scotland, where they reported the same thing just before it was reported here, it seems like they basically just accepted that was just a, a mass hysteria. That thing, Michael? Not that I'm, not that I'm, you know, holding on to it. No, no, no. I absolutely, you've obviously had got. But if you remember also, Gary, we were told that one of the problems here was that there wasn't a conversation being had with young men. Nobody was talking to young men about consent and explaining what consent was, because a lot of young men were confused that they thought that if you went up to somebody in a nightclub and injected them with a stupefying drug and then brought them back to their apartment or wherever and then sexually assaulted them, that they didn't understand that, that was a problem about consent there, you see. So we needed to have a conversation about that because obviously people were confused. I think, Michael, the first tip off there should have been when we saw just the massive levels of enrollment 
in the how to stick someone with a needle through several layers of clothing training classes. I mean, that really should have set off some alarm bells. Considering how difficult it is to do, these people would obviously require professional grade training to pull it off. A, l- a lot of people, Gary, wondered why the VECs were putting that on as an evening course. I mean, I just didn't think it was something that the public should be funding, but at this point, I think that about so many things that it just all melded together. It, it's all just your kind of radical libertarian attitude, you know, this get the state out of everything. But it seems to me that if what we needed was a conversation to explain to young men that that actually was a bad thing, that was actually bad because there wasn't consent, it's also perfectly possible that there are people being killed out there and didn't realise because we didn't have the conversation, Gary, about murder. And now that they have, so the reporting is going up. So that would actually make sense. It may actually be a reporting issue. But it's almost certainly, it's not a question that there are more murders going on. More seriously on this point, because there's been a lot of media talk on this and a lot of talk about the amount of women killed particularly. The Irish murder rate is so low that when you read like Irish murder rate doubles, in a year, an average year in Ireland, there can be between 40, and I suppose if we go back to kind of the turn of the century, 150 people killed. And we move between those levels. That's a big move, Gary, in fairness. I mean, it's a small number in comparison to other people. It's a big number in comparison to Ireland 50 years ago, where you had around four to six. But still. Here's the thing uh, about statistics. The highest number of murders in Ireland in the last 20 years was 2007, where 152 uh, homicides were recorded by the police. In 2021, the end of year data is 42 or 43 people killed. That is the lowest level of homicides uh, seen in the last 20 years. So when you're reading uh, articles that are saying the homicide rate doubled in 2022, coming off the lowest year recorded in 20 years, you'd expect those numbers to go up a bit. So I think we should we should blame COVID. Well, we, I mean, we can blame COVID for everything, and we should, uh, because otherwise we'd have to take responsibility for our own actions. And obviously, it's 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 there, so we may as well use it. More libertarian nonsense from Gary. No, no, I don't mean just politically, Michael. If you had relationship problems, if you gained weight, uh, if you just didn't hit your work targets, COVID, the stress of COVID. It doesn't really matter if it actually impacted on you at the time, as long as you look back and feel that it impacted you. Um, because again, Michael, just as the government should never take responsibility for its actions, people should never feel they have to take responsibility for their own actions, because that's violence. It is. It's oppressive. And I can tell you, uh, I don't think that it impacts... Looking at it from the outside, I don't think it, people realise how much it impacts. I mean, on my heroin, for example, I wasn't taking heroin at all before COVID. But, you know, some t- you have to do something. One of the things I've found very interesting here, the Irish media's coverage of the of murder. And the reason they're talking about it is the, the CSO came out in December. So there's going to be a few weeks of that. And it's all, you know, it's going up. But I've seen people who are like, well, between May of this year and May of this year, it jumped this attempt. And other people are like, well, between July and July. And it's like, this is clear cherry picking yeah. of data to yeah, get yeah, the yeah. highest level possible. Because when you actually mm. look at the, the thing, the Irish murder rate doubles and halves randomly because it's they're just such small numbers. And obviously, any single murder is a murder too many, apart from the people who deserve to be killed. Okay. Oh, Michael, some people need killing. We know this. Gary's opinion. Yeah, so just if you're reading all of this doubled, halved, most of the time it's meaningless. But, um, yeah, still gets people going and people read it, so they'll keep doing it. And I'm not going to say grip won't do it because sometimes you can construct a fantastic headline. 
out of just not looking at certain months. Okay, we'll finish up there. And I want to finish up with some good news, guys. So I'm going to give you three pieces of good news. For the Is this because this is the third time we've said we're going to end this episode and haven't? Yeah, yeah. And we probably won't after this because you want to disagree with something I said. Now, take this or leave it. The, the reports are in that the Irish have, are now the largest consumers of fruit and vegetables in Europe. We have... The now gone to the head of life expectancy in the EU, and we have the safest motorways in Europe. So we're not doing everything wrong, and we also did really good in the peas as well. The thing about us and the most vegetables, there's not a single thing about Irish cuisine that would make me think that is true. I mean, I, I've 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 been to other countries. It may be the case, Gary, that we're just not eating Irish food anymore. That has simply one of my favorite things of all time. Do you? I don't know if you ever saw Gary. What's his name? English. Uh, Seth, um, 15, young he was. Oh, what the hell? He, he's always on television. Anyway, he did a program uh, which was uh, Kids in England and Kids in, in Italy about their capacity to name fruit and vegetables. It was one of the most depressing things you've ever seen if you're English and you look about your kids. They could barely identify an apple. The Italians were looking and Six-year-old Italians are going, oh, yes, that's an artichoke. Uh, and, and they're telling the difference. That, well, that's a cantaloupe. No, that's not a melon. That's a cantaloupe. That's a Gaia melon. That's a gala melon. That's a watermelon. You have to think that from your, just your basic experience of being in these places or going around, the, that the idea that there, the, the children in Dublin are eating more fruit and vegetables, the children in Palermo just seems, on the face of it, unlikely. Yeah, I mean, as someone, someone who has left this country and eaten in the likes of Italy, for instance. I just wouldn't believe we eat more vegetables. I, I would I would doubt that. I would doubt that immensely. But if it, if it is happening, I blame Little for bringing in high-quality fruit and vegetables at a low price. So it's their fault. That goes off in record time. Yeah. On that point, we will uh, say, Dave, uh, have a good weekend, and we shall be back, all things being equal, uh, next Sunday. All the best.